Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John 14, we're going to read from verse 15 to verse 31. We could read further in chapter 15 if we wanted. We're dealing here with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, even as we've just sung. And indeed, as we confess in Belgian Confession, Article 11. And John 14 is one of the places, one of the many places, where we see the work of the Holy Spirit spoken of. And here it is by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll read these verses, John 14, verse 15 to verse 31. Hear the word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me, love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give, you, give, it, give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid." You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, and you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to our confession, the Belgic Confession, Article 11. You can find that on page 163-64 in the Forms and Prayers books, 858 in your Trinity Psalter hymnals. Article 11 deals with the deity of the Holy Spirit. We're still in that portion of the confession that deals with who God is, especially as the triune God. That's where it starts in chapter, or in Article 10, rather, or 8, rather. Article 8 says, uh, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Article 9 gives us the biblical proofs for that. Article 10 deals with the deity of Jesus, of the Christ. And now Article 11 deals with the deity of the Holy Spirit. And what we confess is this. We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, he is the third person of the Trinity of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God as the Holy Scripture teaches us. This the church does believe.
Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to the third person of the Trinity, uh, as we come to study now the person of the Holy Spirit, I think we come to the one we have uh, the most difficulty wrapping our minds around. We, we know instinctively how to perceive, how to grasp, how to think of the Father and the Son. We know what a Father and a Son are. We know what it means for them to have a relationship. We know what it means to relate to these kinds of person. But what is a spirit? Surely that's something intangible, undefinable, indistinct, something unique. And not really something you imagine having a relationship with. Made only worse in those songs we still sing or those Bibles we still read that refer to the Spirit as the Holy Ghost. A ghost? How can you have a relationship with a ghost? What is a ghost? And how do we understand them? So what do we mean when we talk about this third person of the Trinity? If we had to explain to someone who doesn't know our triune God, who doesn't understand the three persons of the Trinity, what would we say in response to them? How would we explain to an unbeliever what we mean when we talk about the Holy Spirit? Do we mean the same thing when we say, well, you know, that person has such a great spirit. Is that what we mean when we speak of the Holy Spirit? Do we mean that the Holy Spirit is more of an emanation, a force, something like gravity or electricity, something that just forces you to do what, what it wants? What does it mean? What would we say to define, to describe the person of the Holy Spirit? And, and what does it mean for us to have a relationship with Him? Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? You have a relationship with the Father, he is the one who guards, guides, and watches over you. As we've heard twice today, the, the, the promise of God in baptism is to, to protect and preserve, to turn all things to our good. We have a Father who watches over us, a Son whom we have a relationship with. Indeed, don't we so often press people to have a living relationship with Jesus? You, you need to trust Him. You need to sit at His feet and hear His Word. We know what a relationship with Jesus is like. What does it mean to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to live with the Spirit. What would your answer be? Well, your answer, uh, it would be well for you to, to shape your answer to those who might not know our God by the words of Article 11 in the Belgic Confession. An article that at first may seem very unique and distinct and different, and maybe not something that we're entirely clear about, but still holds out to us a rich vein of God's goodness and grace towards us, purchased in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but indwelt by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing that the Belgian Confession helps us to think about is that the, that the Holy Spirit proceeds. He's not uh, created. He is not made or created, not begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Belgic is very careful to make that point twice. It says that we believe and confess that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. 
and then lists those things that he is not, not made, not created, not begotten, but proceeding from the two of them. It says it again, from the two of them, from the Father and the Son. Before defending the very divinity of the Holy Spirit, the Belgian Confession, the author of the Belgian Confession felt compelled to say what we want to to emphasize about the person and work of the Holy Spirit is this. He proceeds, he goes out from, he is sent from the Father and the Son. That's the thing that we want to think about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. He is the proceeding Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. We confess this, by the way, as well in the Nicene Creed. We confess it uh, very uh, openly and, and, and clearly that He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The reason we do that in the Nicene Creed and not in the Apostles' Creed is because the Nicene Creed is written a little later and it's written in the controversy of, of a particular uh, uh, time in church, in church history uh, and part of the issue related uh, to the procession of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this very confession, as simple as it may seem to us initially, is the cause of the first major split in the church's history. The split between Eastern and Western churches. So uh, Western churches become embodied by the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern churches are the Eastern Orthodox and all of their churches. That split, which happened in 1054, happened because of what we confess here. The Eastern churches would not confess this. They wouldn't accept that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They would only accept that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, we don't want to get too deep into that controversy and rehearse all of the very fine theological points that are made about it. It does deal with the question of the Holy Spirit and indeed with also the Son's divinity, which is also why it became such an issue to be recorded in the Nicene Creed. But it does help us for a moment to at least ask, why is it so important that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? That language, by the way, helps us understand something of the relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son. That language, indeed, is intended to help us see something of what it is, of who it is the Holy Spirit, what it is the Holy Spirit does, and who it is that the Holy Spirit is. Indeed, all of the terms we use with the persons of the Trinity help us, to some degree, understand what they do and who they are. When we speak of the Father, we speak immediately of the originator, the one who who produces, who creates. When we speak of the Son, then we speak of the one who is begotten. We speak of the one who has a relationship who comes from the Father. When we speak of the Spirit, we speak of the one who proceeds. He is the one that they send out. He is the, the Spirit that the Father and the Son commissioned to accomplish a task. But what is the task that, they are, that He has sent from the Father and the Son to accomplish? Well, here's where the double procession of the Spirit, that He proceeds not just from the Father, but from the Father and the Son, becomes extremely significant and profoundly practical. Consider, we know, of course, what mission or what work the Father accomplished. We know that He created all things, that the Son purchased for Himself a people to be redeemed. But then what did the Spirit do? We were created by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. What's left? What else does there need to happen? 
What else is it that there needs to be accomplished in our salvation? After all, we've been made and we've been saved. Is there anything anything else we need? This is where, by the way, sometimes our theology gets a bit weak, and understandably so. We talk so much about the person and work of Jesus, and rightly so, that we focus a lot of attention on what He accomplished for us, on His glorious work of salvation. And that's, of course, a lovely thing to do because it's so, it's so brilliant before us on the pages of Scripture in living color, in tangible and real ways before our very eyes. We can see Jesus as He walks and ministers healing and, and, minis- and speaking, preaching. We can see Him upon the cross. We can see His empty tomb. We can explain to our unbelieving neighbors who Jesus is and what He did. But what if, and I've got to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Actually, you've got to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say after this. But what if, what if Jesus isn't enough? What if, in some way, not, not as payment for sin. Obviously, as payment for sin, Jesus is perfect. Not as sacrifice, He's perfect. As mediator, Messiah, He's perfect. But what if his death and resurrection were not enough to save you? That sounds a bit too stark. That sounds almost heretical. And it sounds a little too rough upon our ears. How could anyone say that Jesus is not enough? But consider, if all that happened for your salvation was that 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, a man died on a tree. And then again was resurrected on the third day. What difference would that make for you, sitting in this service, here and now? What difference would that have made for Leanna? Or maybe a little more pointedly, Is it enough for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again, but not for you to repent and believe? Is all that has to happen for your salvation that Jesus dies and rises again, but nothing has to happen to you? You don't have to be changed. You don't have to be made new. You don't have to be transformed. Too often and too easily, especially in multi-generational congregations such as our own, this is practically, maybe not principally, but practically what we believe. We see our fellow members living in their sin. We see them walking in ways more consistent with the world. We see our children and our grandchildren walking in godless ways, but sitting in church on Sunday paying their homage once, maybe twice a week. And we say, well, they must be saved because a man died 2,000 years ago. But what if that's not enough? What if the death that happened, the resurrection that happened, that event of 2,000 years ago, what if it has to be experienced, enjoyed? What if it has to be personalized so that it is ours today 
so that we are united in a meaningful way, in a most profound way, to those events of two, so that those events of 2,000 years ago aren't events of 2,000 years ago. They are what we experience daily by the power of the Holy Spirit within. You see, without the work of the Holy Spirit, our lives are always and forever outside of Christ. We are not united to Him. We are not experiencing the victory over sin, the newness of life, the faith and repentance of which the Bible speaks. It's only when the Spirit indwells our hearts and lives, working regeneration, bringing to new life what was dead, only by being engrafted by faith to the living Jesus are we then saved. Jesus' death is, is the foundation and the basis and the source of our salvation. But unless we are meaningfully united to Him, a union that radically transforms our lives, that produces a work in us that changes who we are, changes our priorities, changes our lifestyle. Only when we are united to this Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit can we truly be said to be saved. Without the applying work, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, taking the work of our Savior and making it real in our lives so that we experience and enjoy it daily, only in this way are we genuinely saved. Now ask yourself, in whose lives, in whose life rather, does the Spirit accomplish this wonderful work? It is necessary for anyone's salvation. So who does the Spirit do that for? Has the Spirit done it for you? Your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers? Who does the Spirit enliven? Here's where we get a little concerned, a little bit wonky, a little bit sideways, because it's such a mystery. We don't know. The Spirit's ministry is such a mystery. It, it's something that happens to one person, but not to the next. It, 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 it captures this heart, but not that one. We have no idea. Ah, but, but we do, don't we? Because we believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that the Spirit is sent, commissioned, given a task by the Father and the Son. Which means that the Spirit's work is in perfect harmony with the work of the Father and the work of the Son. Or to put it more particularly, the Spirit enlivens those whom the Father has chosen and those whom the Son has died and risen for. Which is to say that the Spirit makes sure that not one of God's chosen number, not one of Jesus' redeemed company, fails to experience and enjoy salvation. He proceeds from the Father and so saves all the elect, but also from the Son that is 
those elect for whom Christ died. Now consider how vital and how encouraging it is to know this. It is vital because it testifies again to us that there is only one way to salvation. Only those whom God has chosen, only those whom Jesus has died for, are the only ones the Spirit indwells to redeem for eternity. There is no shortcut. There is no second option. No being a spiritual but not a religious person. That's become a bit of a common theme these days, hasn't it? People who say, I believe in God, but I believe Him in my way. Oh, I think there is a God, but I don't believe in the church. Oh no, you see, when the Spirit captivates and captures the hearts of His people, when He indwells those for whom Christ has died, which are the people for whom the Father has, or whom the Father has chosen in eternity past, the Holy Spirit works such a powerful transformation that He draws each one into fellowship, not only with Jesus, but also with each other. When the Spirit captivates and captures a life, He draws them to faith in the Lord and in fellowship with one another. That's why in our Confession of the Apostles' Creed, the very first thing we confess after we confess faith in the Holy Spirit is the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. The, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that unites us together as one. It is vital that we understand that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of His people so that they experience and enjoy the fullness of God's saving work in their lives. The Lord, the Spirit, you might say, finishes the work of the Father and the Son so that we are reborn, redeemed and renewed in the image of the Son. There is perfect harmony in the triune plan of our, or in the plan rather of our triune God. But you see, therein also lies this great encouragement because salvation is from beginning to end of God. It is God who initiates it. God who accomplishes it. God who applies it. Nothing is dependent upon us. Oh yes, oh yes, when the Spirit changes us, we believe and we repent and we live in newness of life. Oh yes, we are so transformed that we are not dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, but we rush headlong with joy into the presence of our King. Because of the Spirit's presence, we are changed and our lives do, must show the power of the living God. Indeed, if we do not bear the fruit of the Spirit's presence and power, if our lives are indistinguishable from those of the world, We ought to tremble and cry out upon our knees before God and say, Lord, redeem me as only you are able. Because when our lives are changed, be it ever so slowly for the process of sanctification is a lifelong process. Yet that change in our lives becomes the evidence of God's good work within us, a work that He will bring to completion By His power. Oh yes, by His power. For the Holy Spirit is God. Here's the second part of 
Article 11, the procession of the Holy Spirit being the first. And then as we flip the pages in our forms and prayers books, we hear that He's also God in regard to order. He's the third person of the Trinity of one and the same essence, majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God as the Holy Scripture teaches us. So if you're asked by your unbelieving coworker, friend, neighbor, the person you're ministering to, what is it you believe about the Holy Spirit? You can say to them in the first place, he's the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or you could say he's the one who finishes the work of salvation. He's the one that makes me believe. He's the one that makes me repent. He's the one that makes me sacrificial and humble. He's the one that makes me desirous of glory. He's the one that makes me want to worship God every day. He's the one who's walking with me, showing me how to live. He's indwelling me. He has, he has taken up residence within my life. That's the first thing that we would say to those who want to know who is the Holy Spirit. But we also have to say that He is God. And here's where we sometimes also struggle. We struggle not so much with the deity of the Holy Spirit, but with a sign of His presence within our lives. There are, after all, some Christians who seem to show significant evidence of a new life, of a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. Whereas other Christians, many of us, seem to be only identifiable as Christians in superficial ways. How is it that some people seem so on fire for the Lord, so powerfully transformed, and the rest of us seem so mundane, so ordinary, so typical. Is it possible that, that there is a second blessing? Is it possible that we haven't gotten everything from Jesus Christ? That, that some people are just that much better and they get a better blessing? Or is it maybe possible that some of us are just the mundane ones, the lukewarm ones, are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit? That He wants us to be better, but we're not willing how do we make sense of this fact? How do we make sense of the different experiences people have of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives? And here's where we need to reflect on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. That He is the third person of the Trinity, to use the language of our form. One in essence, majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. This is, this is the clear testimony of Scripture. The Spirit is described as having personal qualities. You can lie to Him as we find, find in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. We find that in Ephesians 4 verse 30. And we discover as Jesus promises in John 16, a couple of chapters after what we read, even as we learn in chapter 14 as we read, that the Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit shows us truth. Those are all very personal qualities. Those are things that are very personable. And, he's, and, he's, and the qualities that he has and the way that he's described in the Bible is, is, uh, uh, is in ways that only, uh, are only belong to, to God. Think, for example, of John 1, ver or Genesis, rather, 1, verse 1, where we have God creating the heavens and the earth and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. Think of the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit at spring. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 30, speaks about how the Spirit renews life on the face of the earth. Think about um, uh, the many ways in which the Holy Spirit uh, uh, dwells upon Jesus. Think of the, the baptism of Jesus, John chap chapter 3, verse 5 and following. Uh, think about, about uh, the way that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples on Pentecost Sunday. The, there are the, these events that are, that are ascribed to God, that are works of God, that are powerful displays of God's redeeming and creative power. 
and they are ascribed to the person and work of the Holy Spirit as well as to the Father and to the Son. Which is to say that the Bible makes clear to us that the Holy Spirit is not only God, He is a person. He is a Him, not an it. We don't speak of it, we speak of Him. And that has profound consequences for our understanding of His ministry. There is an enormous encouragement for each and every one of us who have, like Leanna today, received the promise of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Don't miss that. That the Spirit was promised to this precious child and He's promised to her to fulfill, to work in her, to make real in her life, as our uh, form number one says, all of the promises and all of the gifts of Jesus Christ. And He's able to do that in her life A life that is born in sin, under the weight of sin, born into death. A life that does not love Jesus, that does not want Jesus naturally, that does not trust in Jesus instinctively, that no amount of good parenting can overcome, that no amount of good preaching or good congregational ministries can overcome. You cannot make the dead alive, but the Spirit of Christ can, because He is God Himself. Because He is powerful, almighty, eternal, and glorious. Because He cannot be ultimately resisted. Because He can do what we cannot and take that which is lifeless and bring it to life. And He does it in the most tender, the most personal, the most unique way. The Spirit does not come upon us in a one-size-fits-all sort of way. His ministry is personal. It's unique to who we are. His ministry is shaping who we are in light of who we are. He is slow and kind and He is tender and patient. These are the things that the Holy Spirit does for us that we might know His power at work within us. So that we can forever, we who have received the sign and who've heard the word of promise, who have been given this, this wonderful gift of God in baptism, when we struggle with whether or not we've received the Holy Spirit, we can come back to a service like this, we can come back to a water like this, and we can say, yes, the Savior, the God rather, who promises me, the Holy Spirit, keeps His promises. They are yes and amen. They are full and free. And He will keep His Word. I only need to trust in this one living God. And when we struggle and need more grace, when we think we can't do it, when we think that we are insufficient for the task, then let us rely more on the Spirit than upon our own strength, on our own ability. Let us instead cry out to God, deliver me, Give me freedom. Give me strength. Give me what I need. In our weakness, the strength of God is most clearly displayed. And we receive that strength when we rest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's an encouraging word for us to know that it is the divine, the almighty, the all-wise, tender, loving, gracious God who dwells in our hearts. He makes us each and every day, more and more, to be like Jesus. But there is in that also a profound challenge. Because you see, we who claim faith in Jesus, we who go out in this week to be a witness to the world around us, 
to speak of the faith to those that we work with, interact with, that we know. We who identify as believers in Jesus Christ are by that very fact claiming, confessing, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. You can't be a believer unless the Holy Spirit's in you. So if you say today, if you have joined with us in reciting the Apostles' Creed today, and you've said, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it is only by virtue of the Spirit's powerful presence in your life that you've been able to do that. But if you've done that, then there is no excuse for your impiety. There is no excuse for your wayward and wicked actions. There's no excuse for your folly and your rebellion. You can't say, I can't help it. You can't say, there's nothing that I want to do more than this. If you have been enlivened by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by God Himself, You will stumble undoubtedly. You will falter without question. You will go back to your old ways. We all do. But you will repent. And you will believe. You cannot say of the task the Lord has given you, of the calling and sacrifice He places upon your heart, I can't do it, Jesus. Well, no, you can't. Not in yourself. You never could. But you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been given the grace of God. The very power of God dwells in your heart. You can and you must. Indeed, you cannot separate salvation from service. We want to do that. We want to be able to do that. To say, I'll take the eternal life that Jesus gives, the forgiveness of sins. I'll take all of that. That's good. But to have to give my life to the Lord, to have to respect my parents, to have to be kind to unkind people, to have to work hard for a boss that's stingy. Oh no, I don't think I can do that. Give me the eternal life, but don't ask of me the service. But That's like separating the three persons of the Trinity and not believing in the Holy Spirit. That's like saying I've been created by the Father, I've been redeemed by the Son, but I am not alive. By the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're not alive by the Holy Spirit, brother or sister, you are not alive. You are in your sin and you are under judgment and you must repent and cry out for mercy. That's what we need to share with the world. The way that we live our lives becomes a witness to them. That our faith, while it is faltering and failing and we make mistakes, we wish we wouldn't say those words, we, we wish we hadn't done that thing, we have to acknowledge these things. But by the very acknowledgement, acknowledgement of them show that the Holy Spirit's in our lives. Because what we want the world to know is that the Holy Spirit is very much a person of the Trinity. He is very wonderful and awesome God and He dwells in our hearts. We are alive by Him. We want the world to know that we are Pentecostal Christians. There are no other kind. Either we are alive by the Holy Spirit, striving daily to do better, striving daily to keep in step with the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, or we are dead sinners. 
under the judgment of a righteous God. So let the world see what we believe concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit, that He's the one who dwells in us, making real in our lives the grace of God and transforming us so that more and more we glorify our God for all that He's done. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a gift. What a blessing is ours. As You have promised, so You have done. As Jesus gave us His Word, for He said He would send another Helper. Indeed, that this Helper whom the Father will send in His name will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that He said. You have fulfilled this Word, the Holy Spirit. Father, whom we so often disregard, don't understand, find confusing, is yet so precious and powerful a God, so great a Lord in our lives, so personable, so persistent and patient, the One who walks with us, dwells within us, encourages us when we need words of encouragement, equips and strengthens us when we're having hard times. Lord, we thank You for Your Spirit and that with Your Son You have sent Him to live in our hearts. May we all, this day and this week, live in the encouragement of knowing that we're alive. We're alive in the Spirit. And help us to live that way. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's sing as our